podcast after a two-week break. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. Today we're continuing our Oscar series with 1982, the films of 1982, um, where the winner, runaway winner was Gandhi, but there were also some great Best Picture nominees and Actor and Actress nominees that year. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about um, certain events that were happening at the time and how they might have affected the Oscar race. But we'll start off with Best Picture of the Year. The nominees were Gandhi, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Missing, Tootsie, and The Verdict. Did any of you watch Gandhi leading up to this little episode? I did not. <laughs> I did not. I have not seen it for a, a several years, really, but, I, but I've seen it more than once. I've seen it many times, and so I think I have a pretty good memory of it. And I like it. It's a distinguished movie. It's respectable. It's not, it's not my favorite movie of the year by any means, but it's not embarrassing. You know, it's not like Chariots of Fire. It, it, <laughs> it, you know? Yeah, it's much better than Chariots of Fire. I was a little disappointed in it this time around. I had better memories of it than what it turned out to be. It's still a decent movie, but it feels a lot like, um, sort of like David Lean Light. It's like he's really aiming to be a Lawrence of Arabia type uh, epic story, but um, I don't think he ever really gets at the meat of who Gandhi was. I think it's more about what Gandhi represented and the things that he did than it is about who he was as a man. And I think it would have been better... If if we if we were left with a better sense of who he was, um, the way the way that David Lean does with Lawrence of Arabia, he sort of goes backwards with Lawrence of the uh, Lawrence of Arabia. He takes the myth and shows us the human who was the myth. Whereas Attenborough never manages to do that with Gandhi. He remains the myth, I think. Um, and I think that it, but I think it it, it was a hard. It would it would have been an almost impossible film to vote against. I think a lot of people who voted for it were probably voting for Gan- the real Gandhi more than the movie itself. It's yeah. interesting you say that because, of course, like with, as with any um, movie, Best Picture nominee or not, the critics' reaction is going to be mixed. There are going to be some critics who are not as fond of it as others. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said that thing that we hate to hear about movies. He said it was like a lavishly illustrated textbook. Right. You know? And that that kind of that makes me bristle because I mean, really, what's wrong with that? That's kind of a nice thing. I, I kind of like a lavishly illustrated, illustrated textbook. It's kind of a, a of a fun experience for two and a half hours. Um, Janet Maslin of the New York Times said the Oscars seemed to have confused. The Oscars seemed to have been confused with the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. So she's saying exactly what you're saying that the Oscars they were that maybe the voters were thinking, well, how can you vote against Gandhi? Because you know it would be like you're like you know. He's a great man. So. They were pretty pissed off, though, um, when Gandhi won. The critics were uh, were pissed off. I'll read you a paragraph from um, Inside Oscar, the Damien Bona, Mason Wiley book. Um, the next day, Attenborough had to contend with unusually vociferous criticisms from the Academy's choices. Even fans of Gandhi wondered about the costume design award. Rex Reed steamed, for what, wrinkled sheets, burlap sacks, and loincloths? Um, Vincent Canby complained, E.T. and Tootsie are films. Gandhi is a laborious illustrated textbook, so that's what you said. Janet Maslin predicted, someday the sweep that brought Gandhi eight Academy Awards may be known as one of the greatest injustices in the annals of Oscardom. Uh, Loser Steven Spielberg was more philosophical. Look, we tried our best, he jokes. We stuffed the ballot ballot boxes. We just didn't stuff them enough. 
In an interview with New York Times, Spielberg said, We were almost precluded from awards because people feel like we've already been amply rewarded. The tendency is for important films to win over Oscar win over popcorn entertainment. History is more weighty than popcorn. One member of the anti-Gandhi faction took action. A few days after the awards, a tiny ad appeared in Variety. To the members of the Academy, I would surely like to see... I would surely like for you to see the verdict once more and tell me that Paul Newman has, what Paul Newman has to do to win an Academy Award. Jesus, I'm like Jessica Savage today. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You know, I mean, and I, I agree about Paul Newman. To me, the verdict is his best performance of his entire career. Yeah, but before we get to that, because we do have a lot to okay. say about that, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's a total scandal that he didn't win. But I just wanted to follow up on, on Gandhi, which is that um, the two elephants in the room that year was Paul Newman, who deserved to win and was predicted to win and everybody thought was going to win until the Critics Awards started giving everything to Ben Kingsley. Then the other elephant in the room was E.T., which was the highest moneymaker of all time that year and really kind of took over public consciousness in a way no movie had um, in a long time, maybe since Gone with the Wind or something like that. I mean, it was incredibly popular. Even the critics loved it. And for a movie to make that much money and have and have such um, critical acclaim, I think the Los Angeles film critics even gave it Best Picture. Uh, mm. And to not win, and I understand why Gandhi won. I, I, I see what Craig is saying, like how do you vote against that? But it seems to me yet another example of the anti-Spielberg vote. Um, Anti-Spielberg, anti-sci-fi, and anti-kid, what is perceived as a kid's movie. Right. Right, and this is more serious and stuffy and, you know, epic. And, of course, if they still were the same Academy, Lincoln would have won over Argo, you know, but they, they in their own way, see themselves as rebels now, and they're not going to vote for the quote-unquote textbook movie. Uh, they're going to vote for the fun movie, the movie that makes them laugh, the light movie, you know. Yeah, the history lessons used to win a lot of Oscars. You know, the, the, right. the I, I don't, I, that's not my. I don't. I don't think that Lincoln was a history lesson. But I, I mean, the, the movies that are, were historical in nature, the epic historical movies, used to win a lot of Oscars. Yeah, Liz Smith praised Columbia publicists for their hit in the huckstering of Gandhi. These New Yorkers went for class and made tie-ins with the peace movement. Coretta King, Andrew Young, UNICEF, and the National Council of Churches. They even influenced Martin Luther King Peace Prize for Sir Richard Attenborough. The night was the first to show the night was the first show business personality to be awarded this honor, and he marched by Coretta Scott King's side from the Ebenezer Baptist Church to the Georgia State Capitol to the civil rights leader's birthday. Back in India, filmmakers were incensed that their own government had given a foreign enterprise seven million dollars that they could have used themselves, and members of the country's untouchables caste system were so upset about the short shrift given their plight in the movie that they took to unleashing snakes in theaters where it was playing. So it was not without controversy, but it was a total, like, you know, whitey guilt, assuaging whitey guilt, and, you know, kind of... And they really handled the PR thing really well by being associated with all of those really um, just um, uh, uh, honorable uh, groups. Right. Yeah, they knew that the message of their film was its strong point, and they they Mm -hmm. solidified that by, by doing that. Yeah. I mean, it, and talk about a movie that really played into the politics of the time. I didn't really study that for this this time that we're doing this podcast, but I, I would imagine that if you looked, you would see how Gandhi was sort of the, you know, weren't they doing all those 
those um, group peace songs, all the rock stars were getting together, and we are the world. Wasn't that around? Well, you know, I think that was. I think that was a little bit later in the eighties. I think. Yeah. Like eighty four. I think you should say that though, because the the, the year before, in, in the in the middle of mid nineteen eighty two, Coca Cola Company bought Columbia Pictures, and Columbia Pictures uh, produced Gandhi. So Coca Cola really understood how to do the publicity thing and really knew how to sell that attitude. Wow. I think. I mean, I think that probably has some influence. And plus, Coca Cola had had a huge amount of resources, probably, to really since it was their first year in the Oscar race, they wanted to be sure that they really made a made a big splash. And they probably <laughs> really and they so they probably really spent heavily on on FYC ads and stuff. Coca Cola presents Gandhi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <So> terrible. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they did Colombian. I think didn't Tootsie also, but Tootsie became the highest grossing film. Um, of of Columbia film history, I believe it says in this book. Anyway, the top the top ten at the box office was number one E. T. Of course, two was Tootsie, three was An Officer and a Gentleman, four was Rocky, three, five was Porky's. <laughs> mm. Well, there's always going to be one of those, though. Because, you know, that's, <laughs> Six was was Star Trek two, seven was Forty Eight Hours, eight was Poltergeist, which many think that Steven Spielberg actually directed. Nine was the best little horrors in Texas, and ten was Annie, and eleven was the verdict, and twelve was Gandhi. So you had to go all the way down to number twelve to find your best picture winner. But it made a respectable fifty-two million, which um, is really respectable. But next to the three hundred and sixty million that ET made, it looks uh, like peanuts. Right. Right, I can, you know, and as Spielberg said, probably a lot of people thought since no money, no movie had ever made that amount of money before. A lot of prob- people probably thought the money is its own reward. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And and in this book, it says that by the time the Oscars rolled around, people were sort of sick of ET. By then, it had already saturated the market. You know, with the Neil Diamond song, and mm-hmm. and people had gone back to see it so many times. So. Reese's Pieces were everywhere. Right. Yeah, the marketing. I think the marketing for movies like that really sort of maybe had begun begun to rub people the wrong way. The merchandising of mm-hmm. the movies uh, probably uh, offended probably some of the older Academy members who had right. never seen that happen before. Yeah, and they are they were then and they are now about nuts and bolts filmmaking about characters about actor-driven films, not effects-driven films. You know, and and God mm-hmm. forbid it should star a child. You know, so right. it's true that there's a huge disconnect there between the kind of movies Spielberg was making and the kind of movies Christopher Nolan makes or Jim Cameron makes, unless they're making Titanic or Schindler's List or something that's in the Academy wheelhouse. Right. Um, there's just a disconnect with the Academy. that they, they don't want to embrace that change. They don't want to become a group that honors effects-driven films. And, and in a weird sort of way, you can kind of respect them for that now, now to watch as the industry just completely consumes itself with those kind of movies. Mm-hmm. And there's here's this tiny little Oscar Island where all these little movies, you know, that are still actor-driven and director-driven and that are made specifically to appeal to this group of people who will vote on these awards. It's almost like there are two different Hollywoods now. There's the Hollywood that is all about business, all about making a billion dollars um, movie 
who, who strive for that, and then there are the other Hollywood who still make the Oscar-type movies that are that are just seem like they're overwhelmed now and get almost pushed out of the room altogether right. sometimes. Sure. As far as publicity goes, but that's a really I want to say again and repeat what you said earlier about God forbid a movie that features a child should win Best Picture. Has that ever happened? I can't. I and mean, they can barely get nominated. But I think it's really, really rare. I can't even really think of anything off the top of my head. Any movie where the where the main character was a child that won Best Picture. Um, the only one I can think of is um, The Last Emperor, if that even counts. Yeah, it would count because he was a child earlier in the movie. Yeah. But mo- I guess most of the movie takes place when he's uh, when he grows up and he's an adult. Right. You know. But that's true. I mean, you're seeing their weaknesses. Their weaknesses are they don't like movies that or you know, since 1960, they don't... Pr- okay, no, we have to say, because Terms of Endearment is coming next, so we can't say they don't like movies starring women yet, but we can say they don't like movies starring children, and they don't like movies that are effects-driven, and they don't like comedies, and mm-hmm. they don't like sci-fi, and they don't like genre films. They like dramas. <laughs> and they don't even nominate movies that feature teenagers. Teenager te- movies that feature teenagers in high school situations or even college r- don't even get a nomination. Right. That's really that's really strange. At least they they have they can they can all find sort of their inner child for a nomination for a movie like Beast of the Southern Wild or something. But for teenagers, they overlook teenage movies altogether. Yeah, some of them. The Breaking Away, I remember, was one that they that oh, they yeah, embraced, right. but. <laughs> Good, good example, yeah. good exception. But they were like in their thirties when they made. <laughs> they were That's right. Even they were playing teenagers. They were all twisting yeah. thirty. I mean, they're they're a prickly group. The Academy. They're funny because when you're talking about a Best Picture winner, you're not talking about a Best Picture of the year. Everybody knows that. We know that now that we've done these podcasts, where we're completely 100% certain that that is not what we're talking about. When they vote, they're voting their biases. They're voting their their. Um, specific tastes, their mood at the time, you know, what makes them feel good voting. Um, I, I still don't know how you arrive at Argo, but I just have to throw <laughs> that one up <laughs> because that's how it went down, you know, but um, but it was a great year. Let's talk a little bit about The Verdict. What a great movie that was. Paul Newman had heard that he was going to win the, the Oscar. Every, every critic that saw the movie said it's finally his turn. I think he was on his fifth nomination by then. Um, and he plays a, a, a lawyer who is really down on his luck and, and alcoholic and, um, you know, picking up the loser cases. And he gets a loser case, which is a woman came into the hospital and, um, you know, she was complaining. I, I forget what it was. She came, She was complaining about something, but they were going to put her under. And they said she had to have not eaten for the last 10 hours. But the guy didn't check the form and um, she had eaten the last hour and they put her under and she suffocated in her mask and she went into a coma. Mm-hmm. So they were going to be suing. The Catholic Church, wasn't it? The hospital because it was run- a Catholic hospital. You're right. Yes, it yeah. was a Catholic-run hospital, and so the and and the church was knew that they were in the wrong, and they were, felt sure that they could make a, a deal and settle out of court. Yeah, and this is his last chance. This is uh, mm-hmm. Paul Newman's character's last chance for redemption. Um, because ordinarily, the kind of case—that's the kind of case he would want, where they would settle out of court, and he would be able to get an easy. Where he wouldn't even have to try the case in court. That's right. the kind of thing he specialized in. Because he was an alcoholic, right? That's another important thing to mention. He was an alcoholic, and so he couldn't really get himself together to be in court and and to and to and to uh, handle 
a defense like that. And so right. he was always looking for the cases where he could settle out of court, and the Catholic Church yeah. offered him a really, really, really generous settlement, and he turned it down because right. he went to see the girl in the hospital, saw her lying there in a the fetal position, you know, and all of a sudden he realized, this is my chance. Like I said, this is my chance to finally make sure that the, the people who've done something wrong actually pay. Well, now, have you boys tried to resolve your little difficulties? Because that certainly would save the Commonwealth a lot of time and bother. Well, it's a very complicated case, Your Honor. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sure it is, Frank, but uh, let me tell you something. If we find it so complex, how the hell do you think you're going to make a jury understand it? See my point? Now, um, let's talk a minute. Frank, what would you and your client take right now, this very minute, to walk out of here and let this damn thing drop? My client can't walk, Your Honor. I know full well she can't, Frank. You see the padre on your way out. He punched your ticket. You follow me? I'm just trying to help you. Your Honor, Bishop Brophy and the Archdiocese have offered plenty of $210,000. What? My doctors didn't want a settlement at any price. They wanted this cleared up in court. They want their vindication. I quite agree with them. But for today, the offer stands before the publicity of a trial begins. For today only, but when I walk out that door, the offer is withdrawn. Just so long as you understand that, Mr. Galvin. Got to be that way. We're going to try the case. That's it? <laughs> oh, come on, guys. Life is too short. Now, you tell me if you're playing chicken or you really mean it. Frank, I don't think I'm talking out of school, but I just heard someone offer you 200 grand. Now, that's a lot of money. And if I may say, you haven't got the best of records. Things change. Oh, that's true. Sometimes they change and sometimes they don't. I remember back to when you were disbarred. I wasn't disbarred. What is about the charge? It seems to be. The fellow's trying to come back. He'd take the settlement. Get a record for himself. I myself would take it and run like a thief. I'm sure you would. And he's, you know, Jack Warden is his right-hand man, and he can't believe he's going to do this. And, you know, as he goes along, the family is upset with him because it looks like they might not get any money. And James Mason is the hotshot attorney on the other side who thinks that this is just a walk in the park. <laughs> he's going to beat mm -hmm. this guy, wipe up the floor with him. But what they do is they send in Charlotte Rampling, who's like the kind of the spy, and she has an affair with him, and she she reports to back to James Mason with information and um, helps to, to derail his case towards the end. 
But... I guess it's pretty much, you can pretty much assume when you go into a movie like this that you know because of the way that it's going to be, that it's structured, that he's going to prevail in the end. We probably don't want to tell too much about the very end right. of the movie for people who haven't seen it, but I would definitely encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to seek it out because not only was it Paul Newman's best performance, I believe it's one of Sidney Lumet's best movies as director also. And David Mamet's best screenplays. He wrote the screenplay, mm-hmm. and it's it's easily right. his best screenplay. I, Glenn, Gar- Glenn Ross is great, too, but... Um... And the, it's, the uh, directors... gonna, it's the last time we're going to hear Sidney Lumet's name in, in in the context of the Oscars until 2005 when he when he gets the honorary Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. Wow. Or, or was it Lifetime Achievement? I don't remember which. But um, this was his one, two, three, his fourth nominee, nomination for fourth, his fourth nomination for Best Director and his, and his fourth loss. Wow. For 12 Angry Men, for Dog Day Afternoon, for Network, and um, Prince of the City, and then Prince of the Verde. City was um, screenplay. Oh, okay, right, yeah. Yeah. So in, in, the, in the verdict, we see Paul Newman, you know, a resented pretty boy by the Academy who, who actually had, had done some directing and, and you know, is well-respected in the community, but he's... You know, he was always too good looking for them. They just couldn't handle it. And he is really good looking, even in the verdict, even as an even old as man. a drunk, right? <laughs> right, even as a drunk, he's still. You know, and he has this great scene with Charlotte Rampling where he just has a major loss, and and you know, it has to do with her, of course. And he's in the bathroom, and and he's scared. You know, his his dignity is has fled, and he you know he's in the bathroom and he's scared. He's scared to face her. You know, and she just she just kind of says to him, you know, I don't I'm not going to give you any comfort. You know, don't don't try to to seek that from me. You know, don't you're going to act like a loser, be a loser, but don't try to get me to feel sorry for you or something like that. It's a great scene um, between them, but it also has a scene where he hits her in the mouth. That's like <laughs> that's something you would never see in movies today. Never, not from a good guy. You know, right? Because he wasn't—he wasn't totally a good guy. He was—he—he was—he was in the gray area. He had a lot of problems, and you don't yeah. see characters like that anymore either. No, that are—that are all mixed up, the good and bad all mixed in together. Right. That's right. You don't. Especially not at the Oscars. No, and not by writers anymore. I mean, we don't—we just don't have screenwriters for whatever reason. You know, whether it's—it's. It's, um, just the natural uh, selection to to make these kind of like really formulaic scripts rise to the top, and then also the the kind of people like you know Ben Zeitlin and Beast of the Southern Wild, where it's a, it's a project that becomes an independent movie. But people like David Mamet, you know, um, directors like Sidney Lumet, actors like Paul Newman, you don't get that kind of combination project anymore. For one thing, the critics would probably kill it today. Let's face it. The the, the mm-hmm. people who write film reviews on Twitter, you know, I had a problem with the way the movie ended. It was too predictable. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work for me. <laughs> It'd be like, you know, fifty of those. It would get like a, you know, like a a, a sixty five on Metacritic probably. <laughs> so you know, that's another problem. the The critical community has become way too. Um, What's the word? That they just seem to like one kind of movie, and they expect all movies to appeal exactly to their tastes, you know. Uh-huh. And if they step outside that, it gets a bad review, and enough bad reviews, and that's it. It's it's finished for Oscars. I do think that the same situation that we've spoken about before, where uh, so many people were 
sure that Paul Newman was going to win, and so many people voted for him. They were probably there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, disappointed voters in the academy who thought that he deserved to win too. And so that really helps for your next opportunity. The next time you're up, the next time you're nominated, people are going to remember the time that they feel like that you were overlooked, and that's exactly what happened to right. Paul Newman, right? But he shouldn't have had to to do go through all that. He's Paul Newman. Yeah. He shouldn't have had to be like I'm going to win for the color of money. Right, exactly. You know, uh, but 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 then again, on the other flip side of it, how do you deny Ben Kingsley that Oscar for that performance? That's true. Yeah, that, that's why I have. That's why even though I, I, I don't even like Gandhi enough that I've seen it recently, and I have no really desire to go look at it again. But I've I've seen it enough. I know what it is. But I know that it's a honorable and respectable movie, and I don't have anything against Gandhi. The same way that, like you said, we don't can't really hold it against Ben Kingsley just because he managed to land that role, mm-hmm. really the role of a lifetime. Right. right. And he does obviously he does a great job of of mimicry. It's hard to even think of Gandhi without thinking of of Ben Kingsley um as Gandhi, but mm-hmm. you know, when you compare it when you compare it to the acting of Newman and I would I would throw Dustin Hoffman in that mix for, oh, for sure. He, it's um I still think Kingsley's the wrong choice, <laughs> but you know, it's 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 hard to argue with that 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 role and that performance in that in, mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah, because a lot of those people voting for Paul Newman and Dustin Hoffman, um, they have, like, their weird baggage with them. Like, they know them. They've worked with them. And You know, right. someone like Ben Kingsley kind of came out of nowhere. He has no baggage. Gandhi had no baggage. Yeah, it had, you know, like Slumdog Millionaire, it had some, you know, Indians protesting. But for the most part, it came along. It had no baggage. It was just a fresh, clean, easy win. As opposed to, you know, deciding between Dustin Hoffman and Paul Newman or, or deciding if Paul Newman had really given his best performance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, here and from- if, if you're going to choose between an alcoholic and um, a near saint, you're going to vote for the near saint. And Absolutely. I think Gan- ben Kingsley was Gandhi to people, so, you know. I mean, I, not literally. They didn't. They didn't think, "Oh, that's really Gandhi." But um, you know what I mean. I know exactly. Sure, you're you're voting mean. against one of the greatest of um, humanist um, per, um, personalities in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how are you going to vote for a recovering alcoholic, a character who's a recovering alcoholic, right. over Gandhi? That that's it. And also the the other alcoholic, Peter O'Toole, who was really also poised to win finally his Oscar, which he still hasn't won. And mm-hmm. he played, you know, full-on, like, comic drunk that year in, mm-hmm. in that movie, which is, I think it's a great performance. I think it's a supporting part. Like, I think they should have put him in that category. He might have had a better chance, although not up against Lou Gossett Jr. There was no way he was going to beat yeah. him. Yeah, it was a buzzsaw. Well, yeah. So I had not seen my favorite year uh, until you two were talking about it on an email a couple of day, uh, few, like I think before you went to Yosemite. So I watched it. And I was really surprised and really thrilled and tickled that it's such a physical performance that Peter O'Toole gives. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's incredibly physical to the point of almost like like a Buster Keaton sort of slapstick physicality that he had, brings to that role. It's amazing. I've never seen him in anything like that before. He also has had given up drinking when he played that part, but he had been that guy, you know, like he yeah. knew uh-huh. he knew he could do it right. He wasn't faking. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's based on my favorite year is based on your show of shows. Uh, you know, when, when a lot of those old comics were together doing that, that TV show and, mm-hmm. um, 
it's, it's Mel pretty, Brooks and Sid Caesar. Yeah, Mel Brooks and Sid Caesar. It's pretty cornball. The the lead character in my favorite year is annoying. <laughs> yeah, like, he's saddled uh, by being the guy who was in the sitcom Perfect Strangers in my head. Yeah. That, that, that <laughs> and his um, he has all the dumb lines and you yeah. know he has to chase after the girl and he's obnoxious. Let's face it, but the romance is a little bit aggravating and it's, still, yeah. it's a, it is it, he's so much in awe of of, uh, of his idol. There's almost it's almost to an unrealistic point where yeah. he's all, all of his all of his old movies memorized by every, law, every right. line memorized and stuff like that. And his line delivery is just off. Like yeah. I, I think with a different actor, you might have had a more successful film overall, because all the supporting players are so great. Peter O'Toole and then the family when they go visit his family. All mm-hmm. those, like, Swanee, the mother, you know? <laughs> all those characters are so great. Um, you know, I thought I was going to hate the humor in the first 15 or 20 minutes. I thought I'm not going to be able to handle this movie because the humor is so corny and old-fashioned. But then I realized that they were really sort of making a commentary on on the way that the comedy was in the uh, of the era. Right. That's a little of the kind of jokes that were told on my show of shows. Those yeah. are the kind of skits and 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 a little bit lowbrow humor that they actually was popular on television back then. So they did a really excellent job of mimicking that style. And once I realized that that may be what they were going after. I think Richard Benjamin directed the movie, yeah. and so I think I think that he did a really fine job of replicating the type of humor that was popular at the time. I, I think so too, and I love all of the the writers that play the writers on the on the show. Mm-hmm. They're great. And the guy who doesn't speak and he just whispers in that guy's ear, and he has to write down and then say out loud what he's saying. Right. Um, and the guy who plays uh, the actor is the guy who plays Sid Caesar. They're funny. It is. It is really cornball. But I think where it gets its depth is with Peter O'Toole. I, you know, yeah. that is an example of one actor really standing out in a movie. He pretty much single-handedly muscles that into a good movie. I think right. without him, it, it we wouldn't even be talking about it. I agree completely. But I think his performance is so touching and sweet. By the end, it's just. So that was a tough year for actors. I mean, take out Jack Lemmon because, you know, he's good in that, but he probably doesn't deserve to be there. Dustin Hoffman as Tootsie has to be one of the greatest performances of all time. I mean, he's... Yeah, he's... he's, he's and he's great. Obviously, he's great playing a woman, and he convincingly, as as Tootsie, or what, Dorothy is her name, um, he's convincing but he's also great as... As as a man, he's he's great both ways and completely different and yet similar. Yeah, that to me is a perfect film. It's a perfect film, with, and it was a mess when they were putting it together. But the director, Sidney Pollack, Terry Garr, Bill Murray, Jessica Lange—I mean, they're just the supporting players are all great. The plot is fantastic; it's believable. This this the weird soap opera within the movie is great. Um, Dabney Coleman is the creepy director slash boyfriend. You know, it's just, it's such a funny movie and it really holds up today. Read of this line that you have every right to happiness. I hate it. Hi, Ron, this is Dorothy Michaels, our director, Ron Carlyle. Hi, Hi. And how are you? Hi. Dorothy didn't bring a resume, but George Fields is her agent. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's very impressive. Gosh, I'm afraid you're not right for this role, though, honey. I'm, I'm sorry. Thanks for coming by. Page two and five. Do you want camera one or two on that? Camera two and tell Art about that. Why am I not right, Mr. Carlyle? Well, I'm just uh, trying to make a certain statement here, and I'm, I'm looking for a very specific physical type. Mr. Carlyle, 
I'm an actress. I'm a character actress. I can play this part any way you want. Honey, I'm sure that you're Why a very, you very good actress. What you're it's just for? that you're a little bit too soft what? and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me, or I'm going to knead your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? To start? Yes, I think I know what y'all really want. You want some gross caricature of a woman. To prove some idiotic point, like, like power makes women masculine, or masculine women are ugly. Well, shame on the woman that lets you do that, on any woman that lets you do that. And that means you, dear. Miss Marshall, shame on you, you macho shithead. Jesus. What is idiotic about power making a woman masculine? Not that that was my point. I... Miss Michaels, just a minute. Nancy Weiser to video transfer. Was that for real in there, or were you auditioning for the part? Which chance will get me a reading, Miss Marshall? Well, good for you. Come. Miss Michaels? Yes. Oh. You really think she's worth testing for this, huh? She told me no director had ever communicated a part to her so fast. She said that? Mm-hmm. I like her accent. something friendly, what? like a firing squad. Okay, Miss Michaels, we're going to do a little camera test now. Yes. Uh, let me have a right profile, camera one. Camera three, give me a left profile. What side? Left side. Which way? For your left? What? Is that my left or your left? Wait, wait a minute. What are you talking about? My left? Your left. Miss Michaels... Nobody's talking to you. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted my profile. That's up close on camera three. Camera three, back off. I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? How do you feel about Cleveland? Knock it off. That's good right there, Herbie. All right, Dorothy, honey, we're going to try one, okay? Yes. Now, let me see exactly what you showed us a while ago. Cure, Joe. I know the kind of woman you are, Emily. You're getting older. You've never been married. You don't have a man, so you want to act like one. All right, just shut your mouth right now. When you talk to me, you talk to me professionally. You don't get personal. That is totally inappropriate behavior. I'm very proud of being a woman, Dr. Brewster. I'm very proud of this hospital, and you should be too. And I must tell you that before I let it be destroyed by your petty tyrannies, by your callous inhumanity, sir, I'm going to recommend to the board that you be turned out into the street. Good day, Dr. Booster. I said good day, sir. It was think... timely, too, because um, obviously it's dealing with issues of women's rights, and this was the year that the ERA was voted down by 38 states, or, oh, or God. failed to get the majority um, and, and turned into an amendment. Wow. And so also that year, amid all of this wonderfulness, the best actress race was exploding because you had... Sophie's Choice, Meryl Streep, you know, the greatest performance maybe by any actor ever. Um, and 
uh, up against Jessica Lang and Francis, and then you know the others: Deborah Winger and, and Officer and Gentleman Sissy Spacek and, and um, Missing and, and Julie Andrews and Victor Victoria, another cross-dressing part that year. Um, but mainly, it was between Jessica Lang and Meryl Streep, and Jessica Lang was famously nominated and supporting for Tootsie and won um, for for a part she did not deserve because she everybody loved her so much in Francis that they could not give her the Oscar. Yeah, how does she win? That that has to be the only explanation. I mean, it's not that she's terrible in Tootsie, but it's just not a. It's just not a part that you go, "Wow, Jessica Lange, Tootsie," that she really right. delivered. You know, right? No, um, for sure. And Terry Gar was upset because she thought that, that Jessica Lange had deserved, had should have been put in the lead role for that movie, not the supporting. So she felt like she was at an unfair disadvantage, even though she's the funniest one in that movie. Terry Gar. Terry Gar. Oh, I think so too, definitely. But you know, the thing about Jessica Lange, she she was also having a pretty fantastic year off screen. You know, she was dating. That's she started dating. Um, Sam Shepard. Oh, not She had Barishnikov. previously dated Bob Fosse. She had and Barishnikov. Nuria. Yeah, was it Barishnikov? Barishnikov, yeah. Barishnikov, yeah. So, I mean, her boyfriends yeah. were, were uh, incredibly. Well, she was a hot you know. number. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was not only gorgeous, but she was really smart and, and mysterious. And, you know, she. That's a pretty resistant. amazing turnaround when you consider that her film debut was um, basically playing the cupcake in King Kong. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I know. Since 1976, being dragged around uh, in the palm of King Kong's hand and everything. In fact, Bob Fosse said, I've never seen someone go from so cold to so hot in such a short amount of time. Right. right. Because she had done um, po- uh, po- The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is just a fantastic movie if, if you've never seen it. You know, maybe it's not as good as the original, but man, is it good. There's a really hot sex scene on a in the kitchen <laughs> I know. on a yeah. chopping block or whatever between Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange that is so real and raw. You know, um, they're both great. It's pretty, it's pretty unprecedented for American movies. I mean, there's no nudity with it, but the intensity of the physicality and the intensity of the emotion in it is 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 really surprising for an American film. Yeah, and what you see is what you saw with Body Heat, which was an ability to illustrate what they had to just suggest in the in the older film noirs where they couldn't show any kind of explicit sex. Whereas in Body Heat and Postman. You know, you really see the kind of burning desire play out on screen um, in a really, like, erotic fashion. You know, that kind of erotic cinema we were talking about, Craig, uh, is gone. Yep. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. It's just now, it's just from the male point of view, so it tends to just be kind of like hot young things as opposed to real erotica like these movies are. Yeah, and they rely more on... on Nudity. There's no sexiness anymore. I mean, right. look at look. Uh, I'm not going to bring it up because I make fun of this movie every week. But um, <laughs> there was a certain rom- there was a certain romance last year that was Oscar nominated <laughs> that was completely sexless. You know? Yeah, where like, was how, the sex? How do you have Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence on screen and not have them be sexy? It's you, just you have her, me. you have her air humping during the dance, and then you have her saying, "I'm, you know, I'm sloppy and dirty, or I'm right. having sex with these women in the office." But compare Which that. Looks great in the trailer, right? That's really a, a, a good tease for the trailer. But then you go see the movie, and it doesn't materialize. But imagine if it had been made like at this time for adults. You know, there would have been some kind of a sex scene, and it could have been great. You know. Um, 
That's the thing about that um, you really nailed it because it's, these are movies for adults. Um, Postman Always Rings Twice was an adult movie and it was directed by Bob Raffleson, who made Five Easy Pieces, King of Martin Gardens, and those fantastic movies in the early '70s. So the uh, the uh, Postman Always Rings Twice, which actually was a 1981 movie that we forgot to mention last the last in the last podcast, mm. but but it's worth bringing up because it was like a comeback for him, and it was really a grown up adult movie that. That, that, like you said, really touched on all of the things in the in the novel in, J, in James Kane's novel that they couldn't do in nineteen in the nineteen forties. Right, right. The raw sexuality. Yeah, and and that that explains it. You know, yes, I love it that that film noir managed to do it without needing to go there because that's how mm-hmm. good it was. Like um, Double Indemnity, if you just watch that, she drips sexuality in that movie and control and dominance. Mm-hmm. But there's something that makes you understand Postman better by seeing the sex between them. You can understand why it would get to murder so fast. And the same oh, with yeah. Body Heat. You know, you can understand that mm-hmm. because you know that kind of savage love, you know, is, is just undeniable. Mm-hmm. When did it end? When did that kind of stuff end in movies? I think that it may have ended right around 1982 and 83, and I think that a lot of the, part of the reason for that, sad to say, is that that's when the, uh, when the AIDS virus was discovered. Mm. And suddenly people started, the sexual revolution came to a screen Halt. Right. All through, throughout the 70s, it, it was uh, the free love thing that had started in the ni- late 1960s with Woodstock and everything developed into the disco era when everyone was having all kinds of sex during the 70s. And then, but it all came to a halt, I think, when AIDS came on the scene. Uh-huh. AIDS, and I think also the PG 13 rating had something to do with it because it, um, it'll, it, it allowed. It allowed them to harden regular PG movies a little more, but without going all the way to R. And that was where the money was, was in the PG-13. So mm-hmm. and you can't have any nudity for PG-13. So uh, that, um, I think, and, I, and the MPAA has historically, at least since then, shown a skittishness about sex that they don't show about violence. Mm-hmm. The, quickest way to, the quickest way to an R in a movie these days is just to say, say the word fuck twice, and you've got an R. God. It used to be Let during the 70s. Doing it. During, you're right. I think during the 70s, a movie that had an M rating for mature audiences could still make a huge amount of money. We've seen, we've talked about the ones that did. But as soon as they, as soon as they split it up to PG-13 and R, studios figured out really fast that the PG-13 movies are the ones that are going to make the money, right. and the R-rated movies are going, going to be, um, are not going to make as much money because the audiences are going to be restricted. Right. By definition. PG-13 could be hard enough to be sort of perceived as being still adult. Right, but that's true. I wonder in the last, since PG-13 was invented, I'd like to track Oscar Best Picture nominees and winners to see how to see how it's gone down, to see how many R movies get in. And, and what was the last R movie to win Best Picture? Good question. Um, but, but it is so... It may have been it may have been like the Hurt Locker, but it was rated R not for sexuality. Right. The Hurt Locker right. was not rated R for sexuality. And it made so it no money. It made no yeah. money at all. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because look, you can't tell me that the young people of our country aren't like staring at porn, spanking their monkey, fucking each other, getting teen pregnant, and yet they're hiding sex in the movies. Yep. It's so strange. The last Best Picture winner that really was overtly and definitely had sex as the theme was probably American Beauty in 1999. Wow. Was it R? 
Uh, it must have been. It had to be R, yeah. don't you think? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can't remember exactly, but I'm just assuming that it was R. I don't remember. Yeah, because it has Annette Benning having sex in that hotel room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and, and just all it was just a nonstop people being obsessed with sex. A lot of the characters right. were obsessed with sex, all kinds of sex. So that was the last one. Wow. I think so, yeah. Well, you can say the last five years have absolutely, other than Hurt Locker. Oh, no, no country for old men had to be R. Yeah, but but not for sexuality. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, for violence. I know, the sex is gone. It's gone. That's so strange. But anyway, we really encourage people to go (laughs) see. If you haven't seen Postman Always Rings twice, Mm. just watch it for that kitchen scene, the sex on the the cutting board. It's amazing. And plus, um, the cinematographer is uh, Sven Nyquist, who's Mm. Bergman's cinematographer. So it's a beautiful movie, too. It's really great to look at. It really for feels. fans of the novel, it, it follows the novel a little more carefully than the original film did. I, I, I'm not going to make the argument that it's a better film than the original. It's just different. Right. Mm-hmm. De- yeah. Definitely worth it. And you've got Lang, Lang and Nicholson. You can't go wrong. Right. The, the 1981 version, I think the, the, the 40s version doesn't spend much time in, in court. After the murder, they sort of get their sort of, they find, um, they, they, they find retribution or they, they meet their bad and uh, in, in ways outside the courtroom. But the, but the novel takes them to court. And so does the movie, the 1981 movie. Right. Um, I'm kind of annoyed that David Mamet didn't win Best Adapted Screenplay and that Costa Gravis won for Missing. I can't really argue with that, I guess, for Missing, but I think the verdict is such a great screenplay. It deserved to win. Um, I don't remember Missing well. Do you guys? Not that well, no. But but in um, original screenplay, Gandhi wins, of course, because the Best Picture winner almost always takes screenplay um, over Diner, E.T., An Officer and a Gentleman, and Tootsie. Uh, Tootsie. Uh, that's just a travesty. I know. <laughs> that, that's worse than the Best Picture choice for me because mm-hmm. because the screenplay was not the strong point of Gandhi to begin with. And Diner, E.T., and Tootsie are amazing screenplays. I know. And, I, and E.T. was written by a woman. She could have been a female All right, screener. Melissa Matheson. Mm-hmm. And, but Tootsie was just brilliant beyond words for writing, I think. To me, I would pick and, that. And see, I see Larry Gelbart wrote Tootsie. He was a TV guy, right? What else did Larry Gelbart Mash. do that was MASH? Mash. Right, exactly, yeah. Tootsie was one of those that was passed around a lot, though, and there were a lot of ghost do- script doctors on it. I think Elaine May is one of them. Mm. Um, people, a lot of people contributed to the to the comedy of it. That's one of the yeah, reasons why it's so funny. Yeah, it's got three writer credits, Yeah, just, just as far as the Oscars are concerned. Right. Back to Dustin Hoffman, can we just say that it's great that he didn't take the easy way out. He really authentically, he was really insistent that he could pass as a woman. He wasn't going to take the easy way out where everyone knows, we we in the audience can see that he's obviously not a woman. He wanted every, he wanted to be so much like a woman that he, that he could fool people in real life. He wanted he wanted to be that realistic in the movie, and just was insistent on he they would they would show him the dailies, and if he didn't think he looked feminine enough, they'd have to reshoot it, right? Right, but it was even more extreme. He 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 dressed up as a woman and went out on the street, and he accosted John Voight in um John Voight as mm-hmm. his midnight cowboy buddy <laughs> in an elevator, <laughs> you know, um, as this woman to see if he recognized him, and he didn't. And then I just posted. Today on the, on the site on Awards Daily, the, this wonderful um, video Dustin Hoffman talking about Tootsie, where he said that when he dressed up as a woman and and when he became that 
character, he said, well, can you just make me prettier? You know, I want to be pretty. If I'm going to be a woman, I want to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they said to him, well, you know, this is a... <laughs> or like they say in Tootsie, pull back. I want to make her look a little more attractive. How do you feel about <laughs> Cleveland? How's this you have to pull back? <laughs> but then he said it really moved him, and he felt really bad because he said he was playing a woman that he would himself would not even talk to at a party that would be totally invisible. And for the first time, he really got it about what women have to go through in life and in, in obviously in show business. Um, being beautiful and what it must be like to not be beautiful and, and how he's been, he thinks, a victim of brainwashing um, over that. And it made him cry, actually made him cry. And he said, to me, Tootsie's not a comedy. But it is a comedy. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. <laughs> it's got a lot of funny in it, but the, yeah. the themes of it are so serious. Some of them are, yeah. yeah. But I really well liked it. So bad. No, I wasn't going to say anything important. You go ahead. I probably wasn't either. I was just saying okay. Can I say my favorite um, line from from? To- well, I have many favorite lines. I practically know the movie backwards and forwards. One of those that I've committed almost completely to memory. But one of the greatest lines is when Terry Gar says, "I don't take this shit from friends, only from lovers." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Who can who can relate to that? I know, right? I don't take this shit from friends, but she's so funny in it. I just love her. Um, her character it's so rich you know she's not just the actor friend of dustin hoffman she's not just his confidant which she is but she's also the girl who like every time she's at a party she steals food um she's totally the the hard luck girl who makes him dinner and he comes late and she burns the meatloaf and at the same time she's like working on her acting and working on her self-esteem she's trying to be a strong woman but she's totally a doormat Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's great I mean, she she could be the subject of a whole movie herself. That's yeah. such a good character. And and Bill Murray too, you know, as the weird playwright who has all those great deadpan lines. And then and then the character who falls in love with <laughs> with Dustin Hoffman as um, as Tootsie, you know, um, Dabney Coleman. No, no, the the doctor, the doctor. Oh right, right, right. Oh, yeah, he yeah, says, yeah. I I know I'm just a worthless old has been. She says. Well, have you ever been famous? And he said, no. Well, how can you be a has-been? <laughs> I love how you never let me get away with anything. <laughs> so crazy. I love that movie. but I feel like so far the theme of the 80s is turning out to be the decade of the woman in terms of number of, at least as far as Oscar's concerned. I don't know if you scratched deeply if, it's, if, if there's a lot of them, but... There are years now where they have a hard time coming up with five nominees in those categories. Right. Here, they're overflowing. I mean, and, you, and when you add in the best actor, supporting actress, um, except for Jessica Lange, who we decided wasn't that special in Tootsie, but Glenn Close, who has still never won an Oscar, right. am I correct? Right. Um, Terry Garr, which you were talking about, and Leslie Ann Warren is hilarious in Victor Victoria. Right. Kim yeah, Stanley and also and Francis, not right. only about women, but about sexuality, because uh, there were several movies in, in 1982 that had to do with cross-dressing. Tootsie and uh, Victor Victoria and um, John Lithgow played a cross-dresser or a transvestite, I think, in World According to Gar. Right. Transsexual. Transsexual. Yeah, actually, Transsexual. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, right. So they were really uh, willing to explore things like that that they just don't go near those, those those subjects anymore. No, and they, they don't even seem to be... Unless it's to make fun of it, right? Unless right. it's to, to mock it, and, and that's, these movies did not do that. No, and, and you know, it, it, we really should say something about Sophie's Choice, because 
that was an insane performance and she had begged the director to put her in that part a lot of other actresses wanted it obviously and funnily enough after Meryl Streep gave that performance people criticized it for being too um, mechanical like I remember that period of time because that was the year I graduated high school 1983 the, the year that the Oscars were held um, and, and I remember people criticizing Meryl Streep at, and saying it's just a, a new accent and a new wig of course, now all these years later, we know that's not true. We all know what a great actress she is. But if you look back at Sophie's Choice, what she had to go through, how she starved herself to, to get to the concentration camp scenes, she, she just drank only red, white wine. She ate no food for a couple of days just to get that kind of gaunt, wan look about her. And she, she goes from, you know, beautiful, plump Sophie to this, like, near-dead concentration camp victim. And then back to plump Sophie, who's now with this crazy, you know, whatever he is. He's like a, you know, Kevin Klein overacting, totally chewing scenery as the, mm-hmm. as the guy with schizophrenia who's pretending and posing as a scientist. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole other weird story with Peter McNichol, um, who, by the way, is so funny in Game Change, playing the guy obsessed with Sophie. You know, and apparently the book is really hard to get through because it's all just about this guy being obsessed with this woman. And, and some have said, told me that it's kind of melodramatic. I haven't read the book, but I really think Sophie's Choice is just about her performance. And the rest of it is kind of like, well, it's an okay movie. It's sort of semi-interesting, but it's it's all Meryl Streep in that movie. Um, I rewatched it, and it was actually better than I remembered it. Um, I mean, obviously, she is spectacular, and she she's the reason to see the movie. But I think it holds up pretty well. I would have put it in there for best picture instead of missing, for sure. Well, and especially compared to now, like maybe back then you had the luxury to say, "Oh, it's not good enough." But nowadays, right. you know, you don't see movies like this anymore. No, mm-hmm. uh, a movie so dominated by by one actress, it's amazing. Yeah, and you, the, you almost forget everybody else is in it. I was a grown woman. I was fully come of age. I was a married woman when I realized that I hate my father beyond all words to tell it. It was the um, winter of uh, 1938. And my father is working for weeks on the speech he calls Poland Jewish problem. Ordinarily, I type those speeches and I don't hear to the words, to their meaning, but this time I, I can upon a word repeat several times that I have never heard before. The solution for Poland's Jewish problem he concludes, is extermination. I had not meant to go to the, the ghetto that afternoon, but something made me colder. I stood there, I don't know how long, watching these people that my father has condemned to die. For all these men, these women, these children, the Fernicton. Extermination.
determination. No, she's incredible. She has so many uh, really mesmerizing speeches that when she goes in to tell the stories. And, and it seems like the only thing people take from Sophie's Choice now is that she made that choice. She had to make that hard choice between her boy and her girl, which is a heart-wrenching, horrible scene to watch, which I never watch anymore. Every time I see the movie, I have to skip over mm. that scene. But, mm. but you know, other scenes where she talks about her father and the typing and, you know... Oh, and I like the scenes between her and Kevin Costner where he brings up the Nazis and accuses her of, you know, being kind of a whore and how he's sort of losing his mind and how she has to pull him back from the brink every time. It's a complicated relationship. And it's a complicated, although all of the characters are so complicated, they get to touch on every emotion. There's not a single emotion that anyone doesn't get to express in that movie. Yeah. And they don't write movies like that anymore. I mean, it's really rare to find a movie that with with characters that rich. Um, she and it's such a meteoric rise she made from from winning Best Supporting Actress right. in Kramer versus Kramer just two or three years earlier, just to be to be vaulted into Best Actress. And that that had only happened at the time to I think three other actresses had only won Best Supporting Actress and Best Actress. Uh, Helen Hayes had done it. Ingrid Bergman did it. Maggie Smith did it. The guys who had achieved that were Robert De Niro and. Uh, let's see, Jack Lemon, and that was it. No one else had ever won in both categories before. Wow. Yeah, she. Um, we, we've just gone through her the rise of Meryl Streep, like in the last mm-hmm. five years of the podcast that we've been doing. That you know, as you're right, stratospheric, and this was her top. You know, this was it. This was the pinnacle until then. She just was nominated, 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 all the way up to finally winning again with the Iron Lady. You know, she, here's a quote from Meryl Streep. Uh, she she was, of course, gushing when she won, because who wouldn't? But uh, just soon after that, she gave an interview where she said, you know, privacy is very hard to come by these days. Um, you think it was easy for me when Life magazine proclaimed me America's best actress? <laughs> My friends wouldn't speak to me for weeks. Excessive wow. hype like that can be very destructive. There is no such thing as best in my field, and proclaiming otherwise makes newspaper wraps for tomorrow's fish. Oh my so goodness. she would already. She was already sick of the whole, you know, thing. The whole awards uh, charade, charade. Um, and then Harvey made her shut up about it when it came time to win. But you know, mm-hmm. I love her. I love how outspoken she was back then. You know, she's not mm-hmm. as outspoken anymore. Maybe she just got older and she doesn't care as much. But you know, she's definitely changed. She's still I doing great work. So many, so many actors and actresses were outspoken back then, and that's really that's something else that has changed. You especially don't see them speaking out against the industry or about or about the Oscars too much because they really get slapped down for that pretty hard if they do. Oh, nowadays, well, what about Joaquin Phoenix? Totally smacked down. Exactly right. Just for saying what everybody in the seventies thought, mm-hmm. and yeah. he was right. <laughs> and one more quote, and then I won't read any more quotes, but back to Paul Newman. He he was so pragmatic and so um, dignified in, the, in his loss. Uh, he said, to say that I'm not interested would be hypocritical. I'm not competitive as an actor or director, but by the same token, I'm enough of a, of a pragmatist to realize that the Academy Awards are good for the industry. They're good for a film. If you worked as hard as I did on this film and with as much affection, you will naturally want the largest number of people to see it. So I would say that it's very comforting to be recognized by your peers. So that was such a nice way to, he was really, he lost really gracefully. Who said that? Paul, Paul Newman. Newman. Oh, Paul Newman. Wow. You know, I think of, of, all, the, of the, all the people that have died in the last, 
six or seven years that I've been blogging, I think all the movie people that have died, I think Paul Newman's death hit me the hardest for some reason. I was the most bummed by that for the longest of anybody that I can think of offhand. There's just, um, he just seemed like, not only was he an amazing actor, but he just seemed like a really decent human being on top of that. Mm, Yeah. He's somebody that I, as I go back through his career, I really appreciate him more and more. You know, honestly, partly because of how utterly stunning he is to look at you know there just aren't a lot of people that look like that even pushing 60 he was still sexy but and when you look at him when he was young he's just oh my god but it's not just that yeah it's it's his humanitarian efforts it's his long marriage to you know um joanne woodward and uh his overall contribution to Hollywood. It's like him and Robert Redford. It's like, how are you going to replace these guys? You know, what, what other filmmakers do so much for, you know, furthering humanity than they did. They, they took, you know, being pretty boys and having control and power in Hollywood. And they really did something good with it. You know, it's almost like they got, you know, their college education in Hollywood, but then they went out and did all these wonderful things. Yeah. They, they leveraged their fame for something good rather than, trying to main, just maintain it. Yeah. And there are very few people in Hollywood that you could say that about now. Um, so let's look at what movies also were, um, you know, came out that year that that weren't in the Oscar race at all, if we can think of any of those. Um, Eating Raul was, was semi-famous. I remember that. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was this year, too. And... Uh, is that right? Wasn't Fast Times last year? Doesn't it seem um, like it was last year? I thought we talked about it last podcast, didn't we? I thought so, too, but in my Wikipedia, it's saying it came out in 1982. Mm. Oh, well. Um, Blade Runner was this year. Wow, Blade Runner completely ignored by the Academy. The King of Comedy, Martin Scorsese. He's one of his finest. That's probably one of his more underrated, if you ask me. I think so, too. It's a great movie, and all the actors in it completely ignored, including um, Sandra Bernhardt, who should have at least got a supporting, but De Niro sh- could have been nominated. I-, I don't know why they put Missing in there. It should have just <laughs> Missing should have been taken out. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that one again. I, it's probably not fair of me to judge it, since I have I probably haven't seen it since 1982, but it just it yeah. seems like the odd man out in, in every category that it's in. It was the year of um, Tron, which a lot of people seem to like. The Thing, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. John Carpenter's The Thing, completely ignored and uh, wonderful. Great thriller. 48 Hours is a terrific uh, adult, again, R-rated action comedy, and it sort of launched Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Shoot the Moon with Diane Keaton. She's great in that. Um, and, and, you know, Poltergeist is also a really, really good movie that most of us aren't talking about, but that was certainly worth the time. I have really fond memories of Tron. It wasn't a very good movie, but um, anybody who's interested in effects should go back and watch it just because it was revolutionary revolutionary at the time when computers still weren't a a big special effect thing. That was one of the first movies that, that was not only about computers, but used computers for the effects. We should say that Grease 2 came out and it launched the career of Michelle Pfeiffer. So Meryl Streep wins her Oscar the same year that, that um, Michelle Pfeiffer stars in Grease 2 and starts her, you know, kind of career towards Oscar. She does what Jessica Lange does. She comes out as a, like a kind of a cheesecake 
Um, Bimbo, though, she does sing her own songs. I think she she exhibits talent, you know, a lot of talent in that movie. But then she goes on to play much more serious roles, or you know, as she chases Oscar and doesn't win and still hasn't won. Diner, we already mentioned that Creep Show, Cat People, Cannery Row. I guess if you really wanted to, you know, define this year, you would have to define it by Blade Runner because it's probably the most famous film that came out of this year. Although, you know, maybe Ryan can maybe speak to this better than I can. If, if memory serves, Blade Runner was not that well received when it first came out, and in fact, the the version that came out was not the version that Ridley Scott wanted to have. It had imp- uh, they imposed um, voiceover narration from Harrison Ford and a bunch of other things, and they changed the ending. Um, and I don't think it was extremely popular when it came out. It was discovered later and, and embraced later on video, I think. That's absolutely right. Um, I think maybe one thing was there was science fiction overload that year. You had E.T., you had uh, Star Trek um, Two, you had, uh, I guess in a way, even Poltergeist was sort of a, of a science mm-hmm. fiction fantasy type thing. Tron. Um, the, the, um, Tron, yeah. The Thing. The Thing was in the, in the summer of, of 1982. So you had all of these science fiction movies that were taking the, up the attention of um, science fiction fans. Mm-hmm. And Blade Runner was a probably, people didn't know what to make of it, I don't think. It only it, it opened and I think it only made something like uh, $6 million its opening weekend, which was not good at all, you know? Right. And so it sort of, and then the studio um, didn't really have much faith in it to begin with. That's why the, really Scott had made the changes, adding the voiceover narration and stuff, because the studio was already skittish about it, because right. it wasn't like anything they had seen before. Well, and I guess so, you you have to say that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, you weren't finished. Just, just, to, just to wrap up, I was just going to say that I think that um, that it was ahead of its time. That yeah. after after MTV and and other movies started imitating the style of it, the style became the thing that people were talking about, and people gave it a second look on DVD and video were just um, becoming a thing, and right. so people rediscovered the movie on DVD, and then when really Scott was able to. Um, repair it or, or put it back to the way that he originally wanted to do it in the first place, um, it really had a reappraisal and that people realized what a masterpiece that had been and, what, and how they, and they'd really missed the boat on it in 1982. But I feel you like if you, was, oh, I was just going to say, I feel like that there are maybe a handful of movies that you could say would be really memorable from 1982. And only one of them I think is an Oscar movie and that's E.T. The others mm-hmm. would be Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, The Thing, Blade Runner, uh, and maybe Poltergeist as like the most memorable by most people, you know, of this mm-hmm. year. The most the notable thing about. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the most notable films that have really had staying power all these years. I was going to say the interesting thing about E.T. and Poltergeist as a pair of movies, and I would even include Gremlins in this, is. When Spielberg made Jaws, he didn't really realize that the sequels were going to be a big thing. And so when Universal took over doing the sequels to Jaws 2 and Jaws 3, it was out of Spielberg's hands. And he he was sort of appalled by what they did to, to his movie with the sequels. And so he was determined not ever to let that happen again. So when he made Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he figured that they would probably want to do a sequel to it. But he made sure that he was going to retain the rights to it. And so he immediately started thinking about what his follow-up to Close Encounters would be. And he thought he would do the dark side of Close Encounters. He would do the movie where the aliens come to Earth and they're not so friendly. They're not benign. Oh, they're not wow. benevolent. They're actually... Um, 
here for, for no good. And he, he in, in researching Close Encounters, he had discovered one of the very first UFO cases in 1955, which was in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, I believe. And um, before the UFOs were even a thing, there was a family that was terrorized or claims to have been terrorized one night, and they, they fled to the sheriff's office and the police department and the sheriffs went out to their house. And there were dozens and dozens of witnesses who saw these, who claimed to have seen these small little three-foot-tall creatures who were terrorizing this family this night. <laughs> No kidding, and it's a famous case. You should look it up on Wikipedia because it's, it's one of the most most um, um, substantiated UFO claims of all time. And they didn't even call them UFOs. The family referred to them as as goblins because they didn't think of them as aliens. <laughs> and so Spielberg was going to make that movie. He was going to make the movie where the aliens come and they terrorize the family instead of instead of being friendly. And then he went away to do, I guess, the Indiana Jones movie, and he started to have second thoughts. He didn't want to. He didn't want to make aliens scary, and, and he didn't want to make a, a horror movie. So he turned. He decided to split all of those pieces of the movie off, and to give that, and to turn that into another science fiction movie, and give that to Toby Hooper, and then he would make E.T., which um, Melissa Matheson wrote. And but then Toby Hooper and Spielberg talked about it. And they said, Look, we can't have two. Dueling science fiction movies came out the same year. Why don't we just go ahead and just go all the way with the with the terrorizing the family movie? And instead, of, and if we're going to have goblins, let's do Poltergeist. So, so Poltergeist was a spinoff of of his original idea for E.T., which was going to be called Night Skies, and it was going to be a horror movie. E.T. was originally intended to be a horror film. No, that's so funny. Well, in Inside Oscar, they say that he had been sitting in. Um you know, filming Indiana Jones and just sitting down and he was missing his girlfriend. He was feeling really lonely and that he and Melissa Matheson sat there and had a conversation about, uh, you know, this little space alien who missed his home. It's mm-hmm. funny that, that there are those two stories floating out there. I guess well, I, could, I think it's the, the, the same story because I think there was going to be one among all of the evil aliens. There was going to be one good guy. There was going to be one good mm-hmm. alien who tried to befriend the family and tried to help and protect them. And so they retained him as ET. He was the one good alien from the Night Skies movie, and they spun him off and made his own, gave him his own movie. I know. So it's the same story. It's right. the same story. I wanted to tell you. You know how you're always talking about Hal Ashby. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. So he did two movies that year. One was called Let's Spend the Night Together. It's at the Rolling Terrible. Stones. <laughs> That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a travesty because it's one of my favorite directors and my all-time favorite band. And, and it documented the concert tour, which was my first rock and roll concert. So it should have been a home run. And it's it's just kind of dull. Why? It's, it, Let's Spend the Night Together. Is it just a concert movie or is it does it have like yeah. a weird star in it? Just concert movie. Just concert movie. It's not, it's not fictionalized at all? There's no narrative to it? Nope. Okay, I didn't know. I didn't don't really know about that movie very much. Me either. Um, his other movie was Looking to Get Out, starring John Voight and Margaret and Burt Young, also directed by Hal Ashby. Mm. Interesting. I don't think I've ever seen that one. I haven't either, and it doesn't have a good reputation at all. He really, his last chance to win the Oscar, I guess, was with Coming Home. Being there. Uh, being, yeah. for being there? Um, being, yeah, being there and coming home, I think. Um, yeah. Um, did we mention Night Shift? Night Shift also came out this year, that the Ron Howard, um, an early Ron Howard movie that he directed. That I would strongly encourage people to go back and look at that one. I don't know how well it's held up, but I loved that movie at the time. That was one of the R-rated movies that my dad took me to that year. Mm-hmm. And um, I think people who know Ron Howard of today would be really surprised that that's a Ron Howard movie because it's, it's not raunchy, but it's by Ron Howard standards. It, it totally is. He hadn't. <laughs> He hadn't softened up into the Oscar Doughboy yet. He, oh. he, he really had an edge. Um, <laughs> and Mike, Michael, Michael Keaton is hilarious. 
and Shelley Long, who went on to a big career in Cheers, was hilarious. And uh, Henry Winkler, who was obviously famous as the Pons, mm. was was played totally totally different kind of character and was terrific in it. No, oh, I really want to watch that one again. What is it called again? I miss I miss what we're Night talking shift. about. Night shift. Night shift. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a good year for women all around. I thought this this. Um, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't entirely bad for for people of color either, really. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, but you know, you had a female director. You had Amy Heckerling directing Fast Times. You had Melissa Matheson writing ET um, stories about women, um, mm-hmm. lots of them. You know, you had a Midsummer Night sex comedy, which Woody Allen did, which was totally ignored by the Oscars. Um, you know, just a lot of good stuff. An officer and a gentleman. A lot of strong female roles in that. I mean, it is almost like a different planet. The way and pers- the, personal best, personal, personal best, best, one of the yeah. very first uh, really frank, uh, honest uh, looks at lesbian relationship. Right. We right. should give a little bit of a shout out to Deborah Winger. Is this the first? Is this the first movie that she showed up on Oscars radar as Officer and a Gentleman? Looks or had like she showed it. Up yeah. For uh, Urban Cowboy. Mm, no, but I loved I her in Urban Cowboy. This is her first Oscar attention. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, but she doesn't get nominated. After, after though. Terms of Endearment, she kind of dropped off the map a little bit, didn't she? Well, I think Terms of Endearment's the following year after this year. Right. Yeah, and was yeah. but I got the impression maybe I don't know where I, got, I think it was sort of her own choice though to to go, to fall off the map. Yeah. Was yeah she it wasn't as, as people stopped um, caring about her or they stopped offering her roles. I think she decided made a conscious choice to get out of the out of the business. Yeah, I wasn't passing judgment on her or suggesting that she'd lost anything. It was just, it was, it, was, it was a loss for us, the audience, not being able to see her for so many years. Yeah, actually, two things happened to Deborah Winger. The first was that she m- was mistakenly labeled as a bitch and quote-unquote difficult to work with. Um, and she got old. And, you know, she she did... She did step away from Hollywood a little bit, but it also became like she couldn't get work. She couldn't really get work. There's a really great movie um, Rosanna Arquette made called, I think it's Searching for Deborah Winger or Looking for Deborah Winger or something like that. And it mm-hmm. it really does tell her Oscar story pretty well. And it's it's a, it's a documentary about being over 40 in Hollywood and how you just kind of disappear. And you stop being a vital, you know, need for, for film directors. You're just... You're just uh, Yet another woman over forty desperately seeking roles. And a so, woman over forty who isn't Meryl Streep. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Or Helen Mirren or Judy Dench or, you know, British actresses seem to get a pass on that because they're not as age phobic as we are here in America. And in fact, she made more movies uh, later in the in the '90s. She made a lot of movies in Europe, or a few important movies in Europe. She made The Sheltering Sky, and. Uh, Let's see, Shadowlands. Right. That's a British artwork movie, right? That's a wonderful movie, Shadowlands. Yeah. Yeah. Really worth seeing. Um, so anything else happening this year? Craig, you want to talk a little bit about the politics, or did we cover that already? There's just a few interesting things happening. Um, the Commodore 64 that came out that year, which was a huge personal computer, and the computer was oh the first God. non-human entity to be given Time's Man of the Year. Oh, my God. Um, mm-hmm. The first computer virus was found in the wild. It was transmitted between Apple IIs on floppy disk. Which oh, my God. Most of the people listening to this podcast have ever used a floppy disk, I'm sure. <laughs> Wait, the um, Apple like II? What's that? The Apple II, was, um, the Apple II was, was after the Mac Classic, was it? Apple II came before the Mac. Before mm-hmm. the Mac, okay. Yeah, the, it, Mac, it, the Mac came in 84. 
Right. It looked like it sort of looked like a a, um, a keyboard instrument. <laughs> you would play the piano on it or something. Oh my right? god! You know, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a synthesizer. It was, it was basically all keyboard. Wow, that's um, interesting. The Unabomber um, sent his sixth and seventh bombs that year. Um, like I said before, the Equal Rights Amendment fell short of the 38 states it would have needed to uh, to be ratified into a constitutional amendment. Hmm. The first CDs were released in Germany, which is another technology that people probably don't use much anymore. It's all MP3s. Wow. Um, Do you remember about the, the case in Chicago where the Tylenol was laced with cyanide? Yeah, sure. Remember that? Now every time you open a jar of peanut butter and there's a there's a sticky thing over the top of it that reminds me of that. That, that right. was such a huge... That hit people where they lived. And I remember this, this general panic of people and wondering what was going to become of us that that people could tamper with our our products like that and, and right. endanger people i guess you could go into any store and just unscrew the top off of anything and put something in it and screw the top back on and no one would be the wiser and that's right. why like you said everything is safety sealed now with that well so much in our world is about to change as we're we're 1982 1983 we're about to get the explosion of cable channels mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know we're headed in that direction you know, the I, think, I think also in 1982 or, in, or 83 is when the Supreme Court case, uh, I, I think Columbia had, had uh, uh, filed suit against Sony, uh, Betamax. They were saying that you couldn't record programs off of television. You couldn't record copies of your own movie and keep them for your own personal use. And the Supreme Court said, oh, yes, you can. Hmm. You can do that. And so that really was a – that could have killed the, the, the home video market if, right. if Columbia had won that suit. But back then, people did not spend as much time in front of their TVs as they do now. But it's going—it's explaining a lot that you're talking about the advent of the computer, the personal computer, because this is, this is the beginning of that era of drawing people out of the theaters and into their homes. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of coincides the explosion of television, flat screen TVs and cable and the Internet and computers and, you know, drawing people back into home, isolated. We're also about to enter the Oprah era, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, the PC era and the child molestation era and, you know, um, becoming a much more kind of puritanical society. The thing about computers, too, is it wasn't just that people were, because people didn't right away start going online. That wasn't the thing, but people no. did almost immediately start playing video games. Video games was became a huge thing, a huge um, uh, way to, another way to spend money and entertain yourself at home besides right. going to the movies. Right. Being online was still a long way off, but, but mm-hmm. the, the, the computers started to put in people's minds this idea of, like, weird, futuristic, life is changing Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's just it's it's interesting to to look at it that it all starts to really really change right now in the eighties and and all these things are are going to be coming together that Steven Spielberg with E T and um, George Lucas with Star Wars and and pretty soon like the market is going to be dominated by those kind of movies because that's the that's the only thing left in the multiplex to get people out and buying tickets. We spoke earlier about how Spielberg won a lot of critics' awards for E.T., but then the Academy overlooked him. And I wonder, I'm not the first person to wonder, and in fact, I wouldn't have wondered if I hadn't read it, but the year before, in mid-1982, Spielberg was producing the Twilight Zone movie, and they had that terrible tragedy mm-hmm. where that helicopter crashed, and it killed right. two Asian kids, and it killed the actor, Vic Amoro. Right. Right? And, and I think people, a lot of people were wondering... Um, about 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it might have had some effect on 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 the way people felt about him for ET. Right. A, here's a director or a producer who's willing to go to, like, any lengths to get uh, spectacular effects, and maybe right. the directors are going overboard with these special effects movies. And maybe we need to pull back to the old-fashioned type of movie. Right. But you know, they're just jealous. They're oh, just yeah, jealous that, that his it, movie definitely. made all that money. You know, yeah. that his movies were such blockbusters. They just couldn't handle it. You know. Yeah. And it's it should, be, it should mention, too, that it wasn't the segment that Spielberg did in Twilight Zone that led to Vic Morrow's death. It was um, uh, John Landis's part. Right. right. Spielberg was not anywhere near the set that day, not, in, not, not in, at the studio that day. He did produce the movie, I think, but it wasn't his responsibility at all. Yeah. Um, we're still in the... Uh, other than E.T., you're still looking at only one, two, three movies that made over $100 million. Porky's... <laughs> which I totally saw. Rocky <laughs> three, an officer and a gentleman and Tootsie. Tootsie made $177 million, almost 200 million. Can you believe that? That's, That's incredible. how big a hit it was with Dustin Hoffman in the lead playing a cross dresser. Mm-hmm. I mean, not really. It's hard to imagine a non special effects movie today making $177 million. Oh my God. Right, because Lincoln, Lincoln made, did. Yeah, but it well, it, yeah, it yeah. made 178, and that that's crazy enough. But for back then in the 80s, for Tootsie when, to make that kind of money, yeah, one dollar was worth a lot more. That's uh, the tickets were so much cheaper back then, so it took yeah. a lot more ticket sales in order to to reach 177 million dollars than it does now. Well, let's say ET was 359 million, which is like iron kind of Iron Man three money. So if you if you if you took E.T. today, I think E.T. would probably be a $600 million movie, as it is. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it was 359 then. Today, if it came out, um, I'm sure it would be huge. It would be like, you know, at least $600 million. It might be Avatar level. Um, so probably, then Tootsie would, would be, be like 200 to... Tootsie would be then maybe $300 million. Is that possible? That it could have made that much money? I guess it is possible, yeah. Because ticket prices were easily half half the price, half the, half what they cost now, right? If not even less. That's incredible, but you know that must have really made Melissa Matheson happy that she was a woman who re- who wrote the highest grossing film of all time. It's pretty amazing. I think she had to be talked into it. I think they had to. Uh, she was a. Um, Harrison Ford's girlfriend at the time, right? And right. Spielberg had to elicit the help of Harrison Ford to try to talk, talk her into help to writing it. She didn't even want to do it. She didn't think she was up to the task. Yeah. Um, one one last one little funny Oscar story. Can I, do we have time for that? Yeah. The the um, this is sort of emblematic of the Oscars, I think. Typical. The the guy uh, there was a Polish filmmaker named um, Zig Zigniew. Rybczynski, who won the Oscar for um, Best Animated Short Subject, he won the Oscar earlier in the evening. He stepped out for a cigarette, and on his way to come back into the auditorium, he was stopped by security, and they wouldn't let him back in because he was wearing sneakers with his tuxedo, and the security guard didn't (laughs) trust him. He said, but I have my Oscar here. Look, I have my Oscar. Can I go back in? And the security guard would not let him in. So they got into a physical scuffle, and the guy, the Oscar-winning Polish director, was arrested and taken to jail that night. So he won the Oscar mm-hmm. and was taken to jail the same night. He didn't even get to see the end of the ceremony. Wow. And uh, so he said, so on his way back to Poland, he said, um, success and defeat 
appear quite intertwined at the Oscars. Oh, my God. And so what a disastrous night for the poor guy, you know? Oh, yeah. Here's another story. Um, George C. Scott, who had famously snubbed the Oscars, you know, even when he won one, um, actually wanted to attend this year's Oscars, and he, he asked the Academy to get him a seat, and they did. They got him a seat. So when he came down to the red carpet, Army Archer was saying, you know, hey, George, go pick up your Oscar. It's down at, you know, he was giving the the address of the of the Academy. They just thought it was so funny that he was showing up at the Oscars, even though he had refused to accept his own mm-hmm. um, Oscar. But I, I just wanted to say something really quickly about box office and how interesting 1982 was, because movies... Tron made $33 million only. Blade Runner, $27 million. Um, and The Thing made $19 million. Like, these movies today would be huge. They would have made a lot more money than that, obviously. Um, it's just a different time. People thought of things differently. Fast Times at Ridgemont High made $27 million, wonder, The same was, amount of money the, as Blade Runner. Was The Thing, it must have been R-rated for the, for the graphic... Yeah. Weird, grotesque violence, right? I think the thing was yeah. another movie like Blade Runner that people didn't know what to make of it. It was too, it was really way ahead of its time. Way ahead yeah. of its time, yeah. yeah. And it well, had that really depressing they're, ending. They're both ahead of their time in one way, but in another way, they're behind the time in terms of tonally, they would have fit right in in the 70s, but they, they, there was no place for them in, in the more cheery 80s at all. They're right. both really dark films. You're right yeah. about that, absolutely. And, the, and in the 70s, they weren't really having the sci-fi explosion that they're having now in the 80s and and onward to today. Um, That's the other interesting thing is that, yes, you know, tonally they're like a 70s film, especially The Thing, which is is almost like a film noir in a way. Like it Mm -hmm. it has a really depressing, you know, they all die basically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you can see why it didn't make any money. But, boy, has that movie stood the test of time. You know, it really It is film noir. I had not thought about that, but it is because it's almost like that movie – Ten Little Indians, or and then there were none. That Agatha Christie story, where you don't know one of the one of the people who you trust is the murderer, but you don't know who it is, right? Yeah. Because one of them is inhabited by the thing, and they don't know who it is. They don't know who they who the who of their friends is the one that they shouldn't trust. Yeah. Oh, and another movie that came out that we haven't t- talked about at all is Road Warrior. That was nineteen eighty-two. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And Pink Floyd, The Wall. Yeah. I remember that because I remembered listening to the crap out of that album over and over and over and over again. I mean, we, we kind of rag on the 80s, but it's a pretty good year for movies overall. And, and, and looking at the foreign films that year was incredible, too. Fanny and Alexander, probably my very my very favorite Bergman film. Uh, Fitzcarraldo, Werner Herzog. Das Boot, um, right? Das Boot, das yeah. Boot, incredible movie. Uh, which I guess was nominated. Was it nominated for? Yeah, I think it didn't it win or... Got best cinematography. It got um, best act, best director nominee. Uh, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. So it, it it crossed over outside of the foreign language film categories and it was nominated in other categories that year, wasn't it? Mm. Editing, sound, yeah, sound effects. Yeah, mm. it got a ton of nominee nominations. I mean, maybe we're gonna find as we go through the eighties that they're not as bad as we thought they were. Certainly, I think I think that's. I think that's the case. I think what it is about the 80s is the Academy's choices were pretty 
it's pretty sad throughout the 80s. But if you look past what the Academy chose, um, that they, you can find some a lot of really important, great, fantastic movies that were are, that are real gems. So yeah, just if you look beyond Oscar and if you look beyond box office, we'll mm-hmm. hopefully find a lot of great stuff. Yeah, um, which is which is a which is something we should always do. Every year we should be treated that way. And but not to diminish the Oscar situation though, because I do want one last story, and then I'll quit. But I mean, John Lithgow was everyone who saw World According to Garp was convinced that he would not only be nominated for the Oscar, that he would probably win. And so he got talked into the idea that he had a shot at the Oscars. But meanwhile, Warner Brothers didn't really have a lot of faith in the movie because it wasn't really doing that well at the box office. And so they weren't even going to do any FYC campaign for him at all. They didn't even want to fly him out. They didn't want to even buy a plane ticket for him to fly out to L.A. and do publicity. So he had to take out a $10,000 loan to hire his own publicist who helped him manage that. And then finally he won the New York Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor and won a couple of other important awards. And so Warner Brothers finally said relent and they said, okay, we'll take out a couple of ads for you in Variety and Hollywood Reporter. So they took out these FYC ads, which cost Warners $52,000. And John Lithgow was only paid, his salary for making World According to Garp was only $50,000. Oh and in spite of his efforts, in, in spite of getting his hopes up, and in spite of all the other precursors that he won, he did he did lose the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor to Lou Gossett Jr. for An Officer and a Gentleman. Oh my God. And he lost again the following year when he was nominated for something I can't remember the name of it. But meanwhile, his salary, because of his two Oscar nominations, his salary went up from $50,000 per movie to $500,000 per movie. So he felt like he made a good investment. His $10,000 loan that he took out to, to, to secure his Oscar nomination really paid off for him in the end because he's never been out of work since. He's been consistently in demand ever since. One Um, of our finest actors. A sad, a sort of a sad, um, uh, factoid of that year was remember one from the heart oh yeah Coppola. Yeah. it know, only I, made I'm fond of that movie i like that movie quite a lot but that's sunk zoetrope right it only made six hundred and thirty six thousand dollars oh it's so oh, sad and but you know it was so groundbreaking because it was one of the first movies that used pre-visualization previs system uh coppola was able to look at the what he was filming on a tv monitor as he was filming it and a, a lot of the digital effects and everything that he uh really revolutionized that nobody was using at that time he paid for out of his own mm. well zoetrope's pocket that that had become standard usage in the industry today but but it ended up it, it caused the movie to be more expensive than than it was able to earn back but it's That's it's really something it's really sad we shouldn't pass that up it's, it's really a changing of the guards all of our all of our 70s kings are starting mm-hmm. to well we have Sidney lumet as as one of the guys but you know the 70s kings are now Stepping aside, and the new the new breed is coming in for the mm-hmm. power yeah. in Hollywood. As your your point about Hal Ashby, he, yeah. he had re- he had peaked, he had plateaued, he he was at a peak and made some fantastic, really uh, um, milestone masterpiece movies. I think they're all throughout the seventies. But as he got older, he leveled off, and he never reached that point mm. again. And so he his his time was over. It's such a shame that it has to go that way, but it does look like so far that it's it's going that way. Um, the last thing we should say before we end this, which we should end it, is that mm. you're right about box office and Oscars. You, you would you would be both audiences, film fans, um, and you know critics would be fools to take those two into account for you know in looking for quality because if they had, so many of these great movies um, that came out of 1982, you know would would mean that these directors never went on to do. 
better work. And of course, um, they did. And and it's mm-hmm. a it's a great year for a movie. Great year for Ridley Scott. You know, with Blade Runner. And, um, they a lot of these movies that that came out in 1982 ended up influencing other filmmakers. You know, mm-hmm. really changed the face of film. Certainly, Blade Runner and, and E.T. for sure. A lot of people writing about movies today were first becoming conscious of movies about this time, too. Right, sure. Mm-hmm. They were teenagers, and the people who are the grown-ups and the, 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 um, the senior people in the room right now were teenagers in 1982. Mm-hmm.